are right now in a new series called Seasons of Change. Um, one of the things that we all know, that we all experience, is this idea that life is not constant. There is no such thing as, as you just kind of hit the, the high road and you stay up there. I mean, I wish that was the way it worked, but it's not. We all know that life is a series of ups and downs. In fact, Solomon, we looked at it last week, Solomon said that life is so unpredictable that it becomes predictable. Solomon dealt with this idea that, that we can all look through all of our lives and though the journey is slightly different, it is still so predictable. We're born, we die. We live, we eat, we go through the cycles of life, we plant, we harvest, we go to the grocery store, we come home, we go to bed, we get up, we go to work, we come home. It just goes around and around and around. And Solomon began to deal with this idea that all of our lives are lives of seasonal change. It is so constant that it is predictable. And we began to deal with last week how even in the seasons and the constants of change, God asks that we stop and appreciate the lives that we have been given. To find joy in the moments that, uh, of where we find ourselves. And, and we say that's kind of hard to do sometimes, but, but the reality is, is that there is nothing spiritual about taking our lives and feeling miserable through them. And Solomon reminds us, hey, here's part of what God has made you for, and that is to enjoy the life that he's given you through all of its seasons, through the ups and through the downs. Now, I'm not sure about you, but we know, and that was not something, I, I, I've, I've known this for a long time. It's not like, Pastor, you just revealed some new great truth to me, and now I'm all the better for it. We knew this, didn't we? In fact, as we continue to go through a lot of the series, there's going to be a lot of this that you do know and that you just are going to be reminded of and prompted of and hopefully we can stop and encourage us that maybe because of what we learn it just changes our behavior slightly in some ways. There is so much change that usually, let me just back up. Usually when we talk about the seasons of the changes of our life, usually it's because we're in a down season, isn't it? When we stop and we think about the seasons of our life, most of the time it's because that the season we're in is a rough one. And we're struggling. But all the seasons that we go through are not rough. In fact, well, some of them are great. Some of them are good and bad at the same time. I, you remember when you had your babies born, I, I, they were great seasons, but man, they were rough seasons. Seasons can be both good and bad. Now, sometimes we find that a bad season actually leads to a good season. It is the introductory or the introduction to something that is good. Today I'm going to talk about one of those seasons. In fact, we're going to go back and we're going to talk about the season of life that comes when we give our life to Jesus Christ. When you became a follower of Jesus Christ, your life 
changed. Now, I'm going to start with, with when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And, and I'm going to kind of, we're going to start here because though your journey is different than mine, there is those predictable moments like Solomon tells us, it is so unpredictable, it becomes predictable. I gave my life to Jesus Christ when I was about eight years old. I, at that time, had no great epiphany. There was no light that shone out of heaven and kind of made shining sunbeams around me. As an eight-year-old, I, I, it was pretty simple. In fact, what was going on is that at the church that we were at at the time, there was a film being shown. It was an evening, it was a Sunday evening, and there was a film being shown in the church, and I didn't want to watch the film. All right, if you've seen some of those old Christian movies, now I got, we were talking about this with Dave last week. If you've seen some of those old Christian movies, they're kind of, um, they're not the most. I, let's just be honest, most of them kind of, don't leave you on a cliffhanger. I've got to watch it. So I was sitting out in the front foyer. I was playing by myself. But I just as remember as if it was yesterday, I remember sitting there thinking, you know what? I know Jesus died on the cross for me. And I know he died to forgive me of my sins so that I can go to heaven. And I want to do that. And I just remember out there playing by myself saying, God, I want to give my life to you. I want to be your follower. Okay. I've got to be honest. There was no earth-shattering thing that happened. I didn't get up feeling light and, and floating on a cloud. I, I didn't have any of those feelings. I was a typical eight-year-old who just decided I wanted to give my life to Jesus Christ and follow him. Now, I don't know about your story, and I don't know how it started. I don't know what made you choose to give your life to Jesus Christ. But the reality is, is no matter what it is, there are still some predictable things that we all must find ourselves in or a season of change that we must find ourselves in that leads us to this moment. We begin with an idea that in order to become a follower of Jesus Christ, we all start with one common problem, don't we? The common problem is, is that all of us are broken. We all do wrong. Now, as an eight-year-old, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, okay, um, there were no skeletons in my closet. I mean, everybody knew what kind of a rotten little kid I was. There was no hiding the fact that I occasionally talk back to my mom and dad. I know this is shattering stuff to you guys that you can't believe. There were moments I, uh, I actually said some nasty things to my brothers and sisters. They deserved every one of them. I just got to be honest, but I, I, you know, as an eight-year-old, I wasn't very kind. There were times when I actually lied to my teachers saying I did stuff. I got my homework done when I didn't get my homework done. But honestly, there were no things in my closet that I was running from. There was no great guilt or shame over what I had been. But I did know even as an eight-year-old that I had done wrong. 
I knew very clearly as an eight-year-old that I was no perfect kid. In fact, I kind of relished in the fact I like kind of stirring people and kind of getting them upset with me for some reason. I don't know why, but that's who I was. I loved to poke hornet's nest and just see if I could get a reaction. I knew as an eight-year-old I was not good. You see, coming to be a follower of Jesus Christ starts with a common problem that we all face, and that is all of us are broken. All of us do wrong. In fact, we're all familiar. If you've been in church for a while, we already know this verse, don't we? In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we read this. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. That idea of the word sin, we kind of, we, we look at it and we kind of, I mean, we almost are scared of this word, aren't we? But God looks at us and he says, you have a problem, you're broken, you are a sinner. That word sinner simply means you just missed the mark of God. In other words, there was a bullseye out there and then that bullseye said God on it. And when we aimed ourselves toward it, we, or toward it, we just kind of went off in every sort of direction. And even if we get close, we still don't seem to hit that standard of who God is. And so God looks at us and he says, you've done wrong. You are broken. You've messed up. Now, when you come to Christ as an eight-year-old, you don't come with these moments of great guilt and shame and, and regret because you haven't lived long enough to do it. There are things you wish you hadn't done, but your dad usually catches you out and gives you a whooping for it, and then you kind of just move forward. But for some of you, you've had to live your life and you went down a journey and you gave your life to Jesus Christ at an older age. And that journey has taken many different paths. And some of your journeys was pretty standard. And just I just did the bog standard stuff and came to realize, God, I, I want to follow you. Some of your paths went down a really hard path. And there might have been times when, when the guilt and the regret that you found yourselves looking at became a little overwhelming. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I went there. I can't believe I, I just, God, the weight of guilt, the weight of shame, the weight of regret, it just weighs on me. You see, we all find ourselves having to make choices through our lives. And so many times, the choices that we make lead to regret, lead to shame, lead to guilt. They're the sort of stuff that you don't go home and talk about with your mama. They're the sort of things you don't go and share with your neighbor. They're the sort of things that you don't go and talk about with your, your closest friends because, well, that's back there. I have a door on that, and we try to close it. You see, we all come before God the same place. It doesn't matter whether you're an eight-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 28-year-old, 
a 68-year-old or an 88-year-old. We all find ourselves before God in the same place. We are broken. We miss his standard. There's got to be something. And and here's the problem that we find. When we get to a place and, and we find ourselves and we find that guilt and we find that regret that builds up in our life, we find that we have to do something with it, don't we? For the wrong that we do, what what do we do with it? How do we compartmentalize it? You see, if you want to live a healthy emotional life, or maybe I should say that back the other way, an emotionally healthy life, you have got to figure out what do you do with all that stuff that you carry around with you? All of the guilt that kind of gets you. What do you do with that shame? How do you handle, I mean, how do you have an emotionally healthy life if all you do is get this stuff on you and you don't have a way to take care of it? Well, we try to do something with it, don't we? There are many ways that we begin to handle guilt and there's many ways that we begin to handle our regret and some of them just flat out don't work. I don't know how many of you know people who, who try to drink a little extra alcohol to try to stop and just numb that pain. It doesn't work. We know that. I don't know how many of you have met people who kind of get involved with drugs and they begin to take drugs a little bit because it just sort of removes them from that shame, that guilt, that pain. I don't have to feel it. It's gone. But even if, you, even if you haven't headed down those paths, we're still finding and trying to find ways to deal with the guilt and shame. I wrote down four other ways that are probably just common for everyday people who are, well, just good folks. How we try to deal with shame and regret. The first thing you can do is it, is I'm gonna put this up there. Number one, ignore the guilt. You ever tried this? You ever, have you ever done something that is just, you know it's wrong. But if I just don't pretend it, I just, I just ignore it. What happens when you do this? Have you ever tried it? For those of you who have, by the way, I've done this several times in my life. Even after giving my life to Jesus Christ, I've tried this one. If I just ignore it, it's like it hasn't ever happened, right? The only problem is, is it has happened and we know it happens and it has a way of just popping up at the wrong time. The guilt, the shame, or someone else catches you out and they let you know about it. What? I mean, you play dumb, but it doesn't really work. So one of the ways that we begin to try to deal with guilt and shame and regret is we can just try to ignore it. But I just tell you right offhand, it doesn't work. So often, so many times, I've had to talk with people who have had to try to stop and deal with shame and regret going back years, 20, 30, 40 years old. You see, it doesn't go away. It just resurfaces at the weirdest times. Second thing you can do is you can wallow in it. Okay, I've always found this to be interesting, but I have actually met people who seem to wallow in their guilt and their shame, like somehow 
You're right, I've just, I've messed up. I've been rotten. They don't do anything about it, but they just wallow in it. It's like it's almost something that I just can't help. I can't just, I just, my, hey. These are always the sort of people that your mom and your dad have warned you about, okay? They're the kind of people that walk around with so much baggage, you kind of just say, hey, I, I like you, but not too close, okay? There's a fence between us and you for a reason. Because the, will, the, the, the wallowing and that guilt and that shame, it just, it doesn't work. It just leaves people where you want to avoid them. And then we go really, really technical because, you know, if you can't really ignore it and you shouldn't wallow in it, why don't we just wipe it out? Why don't we pretend there's no such thing as good and evil? And, and, and believe me, we work on this all the time. We constantly try to legislate what's right and what's wrong, and we just make good and evil as a sense that's a part of who we are, Right? What's the problem with that? This only works when it's me who's deciding to wipe out good and evil, right? It doesn't work if you do it because if I do something against you, it's not a big deal. If I do something to hurt you, if I do something against your property, if I do something, uh, hey, doesn't matter. There's no wrong. We know that's not true because if somebody comes in and steals something of yours, it's wrong. Yesterday, Dave got a new coffee grinder. And I wanna tell you, Dave's new coffee grinder, it is special, all right? Now, I just wanna say, for someone who has a special of a coffee grinder as Dave, and I'm, not, I'm just saying, Dave, I... You know, you have joined the club. When you got a coffee grinder as good as Dave's, here's what you realize very soon. You don't come in and touch my coffee grinder. There's a right and there's a wrong, and you don't touch mine, and whatever you do, if you break it, you take care of it because it is special. You see, the right and wrong and pretend it doesn't exist only works as if it's me who's doing the wrong. It doesn't work if you do it. If I cheat on my school exams, it's not a big deal. If you cheat on your doctorate to become a doctor or something, I don't want to come visit you because you're a cheat and a liar and you're probably going to kill me. You see, it doesn't work. It falls flat. Here's number four. And this happens so often is that we begin to say, okay, we know there's right and there's wrong. We, we, we have to have it. it. It has to govern our lives. I, I can't really ignore it because it just pops up in my life and, and I don't want to wallow in it. So let's just get rid of God. If we get rid of God, then the right and the wrong that we're dealing with is just simply a kind of a contract between me and you, right? And that's kind of easier to deal with. It, if I deal, deal with a contract in a sense of a right and wrong between me and you, we just kind of do it because it kind of helps govern us a little bit and I, I can handle that. But what is the problem with the guilt and the, that kind of regret or, or trying to wipe out guilt and regret by wiping out God? 
what's the problem with that? It's my soul that's the problem. There's something within me that yearns for something bigger than simply a simple contract between me and you and your political party. Do you get what I mean? If it's simply right and wrong is determined by you and the party that you follow, I'm not sure I'm up for that. I'm not sure I like your political party. So if I don't like your political party, what is wrong with your rights and the wrongs you come up with? Well, the same thing that's wrong with the rights and the wrongs that I come up with. You see, it falls flat and all of a sudden the guilt and the shame becomes, it's just, it, it gets messy, it gets nasty. And instead of solving the problem, it actually begins to create more problems. All of us need a standard that is above us that holds us accountable to something that is not based upon who you are or who you like or your sense of values, but based upon a standard that is above us that says this is right and this is wrong and there is no question about it. Okay. That works really good because, hang on, I... I it's only God I have to deal with, right? Well, he's the main one you gotta start with. But here's the problem. Everyone has done wrong before God and we miss his mark, right? Well, it gets a little more complicated because wrong behavior does not just make us miss God's mark, but it does something even worse. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, here's a passage that talks about what happens when we do wrong and we live this lifestyle of, God, I'm going to do my own thing. It doesn't just separate us from God, but it goes even farther. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, he says this. It's your sins. It's the wrongdoing that you have done that have cut you off from God. Because you keep missing the mark. Okay, I'm adding that on a little bit, but that's what it means. The word sin means to miss the mark. And he says, because you keep missing the mark, he has turned away and he won't listen to you anymore. Ouch. You see, the wrongdoing that we do, that which we find ourselves, you see, those seasons of change caused by my own mistakes and mess ups and regrets and disasters. It's not just that it leaves me with this feeling of guilt and shame. It's not just that it says, hey, yeah, God's up here and I'm down here and I just don't measure up to God. But it says it puts this barrier between us and God. It sticks this barrier that says, hey, I just, you missed the mark so much and I just don't listen. That is not the place of where we like to think of who our God is. But God did not design us to be separated from him. In fact, we're told very clearly that God designed us in the very beginning to be in a relationship with him. 
those things, those seasons of life, those decisions that we make that leave us in a spot where we find ourselves broken can be devastating. But it can also be one of the best places of our life. Now, that is the craziest thing to say, isn't it? To say that that place of shame, that place of guilt, that place of regret, as awful as it is, that season where we find ourselves broken and to say how bad it is, and we know it's bad because many of us, even after having given our lives to Jesus Christ, have found ourselves doing something or living something that has hurt us and has hurt our relationship with God. And we know how devastating it is. And so to say that that moment can actually be a place of goodness How does that work? It can become a place of goodness because it's when we find ourselves and we realize that we're broken. It's when we find ourselves ready to maybe do something about it. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church. And if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you begin to realize that the church at Corinth had many, many problems. Their seasons, if you were to say they were in a season of change, they couldn't go much lower. They were at the bottom of the, I mean, it had gotten so, so bad. The church at Corinth at this time, the guilt and the shame and the regrets that were living out, every, I mean, here's what was going on. Number one, they were coming to church and it was becoming almost like a brawl in church every Sunday. Now, that's bad, but okay, that's not the worst thing to happen. I mean, we've all had disagreements with someone in our life and we work it through, don't we? But no, that that wasn't just what was going on. They were coming to church and they were getting drunk in church. Okay, this is getting a little bit crazy now. They were using church as a party place and they were coming to church and some were gorging themselves and getting drunk and others were were leaving church in Hungary and in a state where nobody would help them. That's crazy, but it got worse. They had a lot of their guys at the church were beginning to use prostitutes. They were going down to the temple prostitutes and using them. Okay, now we're getting bad. But wait, it got even worse. If it couldn't get any worse, yes, it can get worse. It got so bad that one of the guys in the church thought it was a good idea to take his stepmother as his own wife. Okay, it it got pretty bad. You talk about it dealing with these shame and regret. Paul looked at him and he says, I'm so embarrassed, guys. You don't realize There is nobody who's outside of the church who lives like this. How can you who live in the church, who say you've been changed, who've been forgiven, who who love God, how can you even say these things when it comes to church? Well, as Paul began to deal with these things and he began to say, hey, this is not who we are. God has forgiven us. God has changed our lives and he's called us to live a different thing. And he begins to stop and say, you have got to begin to deal with these things. It was in this moment that their lives began to change. Devastating, embarrassing, guilt-ridden, lots of regret, 
but it was not their final story. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul goes on and he writes to them. And so he writes writes them back a second letter. And here's what he says. For the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from wrongdoing. It leads us away from things that lead us into regret and guilt and shame. There's no regret in that kind of sorrow. So he starts and he says, guys, here's the reality. That place that you found yourself in was not a bad place because it helped you to get your lives back on track. It was not a good place where you were. It was bad, it was devastating. But in this moment and in this place, there was a place to move forward and you did it. But there's a second option, and he goes on to say this. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spirit's death. You see, we are told that guilt and shame can actually lead us to a place of change. We are told that it can lead us into a path that leads to life and goodness, or he says there's another option. You can just feel bad about it. You can get guilted, you can get shamed, you can live in regret, and you can stay there. You cheated on your income taxes, oh, I'll just live there. You lied to your wife, oh, I'll just live there. Feel bad about it. Hey, you went and you did, and we could, I mean, where where could we go with this? And Paul says, you have a choice, and it's in this moment. You got caught. You're in trouble. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to wallow in it, or are you going to allow this moment, this place to change your life? You see, Paul's not dealing with the idea that we just feel so bad that we turn over a new leaf. Ah, that's good. I'm, I'm glad some people do that. But, but Paul's dealing with an idea that goes much deeper. Paul's not dealing with an idea of I just got shamed so bad that, okay, I'm not going to do that again. He's dealing with an idea of surrender. He's dealing with an idea that we raise our hands and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm not going to just kind of say sorry on this and see if I can get away with it again next time. Paul is dealing with this idea that sin, we know what the result of sin is, right? Let's pop it up. We know that you've been in Sunday school or you've been in church anytime at all. You've heard this verse, Romans 6.23. How does it go? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, we know the consequences of wrong actions. But Paul is letting us know that there is something that leads to life. 
There's a moment when we surrender and we say, God, it's not up to me anymore. I'm not doing my way. I do your way. It's a repentance or a turning from, a turning away from, and turning towards something that leads to something better. God's gift leads us back into a relationship with our Father. Remember the old ads? I don't know, I used to kind of watch like you watching the old um, Home Shopping Network ads. This morning I have for you this new juicer. I want to tell you what it can do. It can do beyond what you can imagine it can do. This juicer, yes, it can remove and it can extract the vitamins and the tasty juice from your fruits and vegetables, but it, but it can do more. It can do so much more. As you use this juicer, it will also provide you with fiber that your body is so desiring. But wait, that's not all. This morning, if you buy my juicer, I will also throw in a new set of steak knives. Now, what do steak knives have to do with fruit? Well, there's nothing better for you than a little bit of piece of steak with a fresh glass of orange juice. You remember those sort of ads? In a sense, God says, hey, I didn't just come to forgive you. I didn't just come to look at you and go, okay, you said you're sorry. Let's move forward. He did, but it went so much more. In fact, he goes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And here's what he says. This means... That anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. That old life is gone. There is a new life that has begun. We are told that if we come to a place where we stop and surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, he takes who we were and he wipes it clean. He takes that which had broken us down between us and him, and he says, you know what? That barrier is gone. That old life of who you were, that guilt, that shame, that is not who you are, I have made you new. Now, for an eight-year-old, that doesn't mean that much. For someone now who's getting a few years older than eight year old, that means the world. God takes our past. God takes the guilt, the shame, the regret, and he wants to wipe it clean. When we come to him surrendering our lives, he takes who we were and says, I have something new for you. You see, that place is not a place of shame. It's not a place of regret. But it is a place of hope and it's a place of security. That place of change is good. He takes one thing that weighs us down and he says, I want to give you a brand new star. Now, all right, I'm going to be honest. 
We're not going to deal with this this week. We're going to hit this next week. It didn't make you perfect, did it? I know that. I see some of your Facebook posts, okay? It didn't make you perfect, but God is doing something in your life. He took an old and he gave you a new and he says, I'm giving you a new way to live, a new standard. Okay, when we find ourselves coming to that place, seasons of change, our lives are so full of seasons, aren't they? I mean, it is so full that it is, un- it's so unpredictable that it becomes predictable. Yes, your journey is slightly different than my journey, But the things that you're going to have to deal with are going to be some of the exact same things that I'm going to have to deal with. The sorrows that you go through will be the sorrows that I go through. The joys that you have will be some of the joys that I have. We go through life, in a sense, with a similar dreams. We all want happy marriages. We all want our kids to grow up healthy and strong. We all have similarities. But there is this. Sometimes those places of change, those things that hurt, are places where we find ourselves with a lot of regret, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. And though that is not a great place to be, the reality is that we are told that that can be a place where God comes in and says, I want to do something new. I want to take that old from you and give you a new start, a new beginning. The old is gone. The new has come. Places of change. It can be a great place. I want to close this morning by asking three questions. Would you agree or disagree with me? Now, as we talk about this, I kind of didn't cover this like quite like I was going to, but, but I want to ask you, it doesn't change the answer, but would you agree or disagree with me that most of the greatest regrets that we have usually involve someone else? Do you find that most of the regrets, most of those things that you have guilt in are somehow revolved around to someone else? And we didn't kind of really deal with this much this morning and I was gonna deal with it a bit more, but I didn't get there. So just kind of a question, explain why or why you don't think that. No deep, no right or wrong answer, okay? You didn't fail or, but it's just, just an interesting thought. Question number two. What positive change have you found that has happened after a devastating change? Now, I I wrote it a little different. I I put it this way. What positive change or changes have you found that have come into your life after a hard season? We know that life is so predictable, don't we? It's ups and it's down. It's up and down. And usually, a hard season will sometimes lead to a good season. So I'm I'm just one of those, okay, it's not for me. This is just something... It's an interesting thought. If you're sitting around the lunch table today with your wife or your kids or your husband or 
what hard thing that you have found has led to something better? You thought it was going to crush you, but instead it turned out to be something that was actually a blessing. Question number three, and here's where I want to get real pointed. If you have made a choice to follow Jesus Christ, okay? If you've made a choice to follow Jesus Christ, what do the following two statements mean to you? The old life has gone. What does that mean? I, I just, that, this is where we're really going to begin to hit the road this week as we begin to talk about the sermon. When we talk about the idea that God says, if you have given your life to me, your old life is gone, what does it mean? And number two, what, what do you think it means when he says, a new life has begun? That's what he says he's done for us. So what does that look like? How does that apply to your life? Lord, this morning, as we get ready to close, all of us find ourselves in seasons of change. All of us find ourselves at a time, there's things that we have done. Lord, we even whether we're eight, year old, eight years old and 18 year old, whether we're 38, 58, 68, Lord, there are times that we hold on to, that we hang on to, seasons that have resulted, have left us with guilt, with shame. And Lord, you call us to come to you and to surrender. And Father, this morning, some of us may sit here with hearts that are broken, living with regret. Father, you came to take away that regret. You came to give us a new start, a new beginning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I do want to just ask you a real personal question real quickly. Has there been a time, has there been a place in your life when you raised your hands in a sense and God says, God, I surrender. I'm done. I can't go on. I can't do this my way anymore. I need a new start. I need that old taken away. If you have never come to that place, you can just do it right where you're sitting. There's no need to come to the front. There's no need to, to do anything special. It's just right where you're sitting. All you have to do is simply quietly in your heart and say, God, I'm surrendering. I give you my life. I've made some mistakes and there's some things that I need taken away and cleaned up and washed up. And there's regrets. There's things that I can't take back. There's people that I've hurt. I can't, I can't unscramble the egg, but Father, I come and I'm asking for a fresh start, a new beginning. If you've done that, if you do that, he makes a promise. He says, for whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. He who comes to me any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. That old is gone. There is a new life that has begun. Father, thank you for that promise. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you do not hold our past and our guilt and our shame against us. 
you simply call us to accept what you did for us on the cross. And I just want to say thank you. I don't deserve it, but I'm grateful. Thank you for your love for me that is so overwhelming that I just, I can't explain it. And all I can do is say thank you. In your name we pray.